You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Last episode, I spoke with Dr. Alex Glazer, and he gave me some really helpful advice on how to efficiently run a dermatology practice. He also gave me some advice on how to handle disappearing rashes, and I'm glad he did because I needed it. The next morning, David Copperfield walked into my office and said, Doctor, help me. I have this really bad rash. So I looked at his skin quickly, and it was totally normal. So I said, what happened? Where's the rash? He looked up at me and smiled and said, it disappeared, of course. So after that visit, I decided no more magicians in my practice. Now, we've had many, many special guests on this podcast, and this episode is no exception. You've seen him on TikTok. You've seen him on Instagram. You've seen him on YouTube, and now he's on Cutaneous Miscellaneous. And where is he going next? We'll find out. It's an honor to welcome Dr. Luke Maxfield to the show. Well, thank you. I am honored to have me. That was perhaps the most extraordinary introduction I've ever heard. And I thought you were leading up to a joke. And I'm honestly not sure if you did or not, because I haven't, I actually like have no idea who David Copperfield is. <laughs> so I don't know if you saw him and his rash disappeared, or if there was like a song lyric in there somewhere that just went right over my head. I was kind of nervous that many people don't know who David Copperfield is. He's a magician. Uh, he's been like uh, a magician in Las Vegas for the past 30 years. He was named the greatest magician of all time, but I think he's Oof. kind of uh, on his way out. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure it landed with like everyone else out there. I do love magic tricks, actually, by the way. That's like a nice interview tip. I think having a fun magic trick in your pocket. I know David, uh, Dr. Feldman out here at Wake Forest has like a very similar approach. Um, so if, if you want like something unique that you can bring to the table and you're confident enough, you can make it work. A magic trick is a great way to break the ice in your interviews. I love it. Ma magic is awesome. I used to be an amateur magician and then I realized mm. I wasn't very good at it. So now I'm doing dermatology, which I'm much, much better at. So it's a better <laughs> career for me. <laughs> oh, good. So Dr. Maxfield, welcome to the show. We have a lot of great things to discuss today. Um, as we always do, let's start off with some board review, and then we'll move into our main portion, which is transitioning from resident to attending, a really, really important topic and stuff that we all need help with. But let's start off with board review. I know you're a Mohs surgeon, so we want to talk about surgical dermatology for the resident, preparing for the exams, and maybe give me some topics that you think are high yield that the resident should know going into their core exam and into their applied exam. So the core exams, I know everyone has a different take on these. Uh, I actually kind of was a big fan of them. I don't like how the subjects are split up. So for those of you who are in the same boat, I commiserate with you. But uh, surgical dermatology was my absolute favorite subject matter. And it wasn't even because I was already on trajectory to like become a most surgeon. That wasn't because that's where my heart's desire was. I found the content actually fairly easy to analyze and then break down in my mind. Like I kind of partitioned it into two categories. And this is kind of how you can approach, I think, all content. Um, I know everyone out there is a prolific studier and everyone out there works hard. But with surgical dermatology in particular, you have content to memorize and then you have content to understand. And uh, for me, that's why this exam was just so easy. Uh, I still say in hindsight that this con this content is the most straightforward test, the most straightforward answers that you're going to have throughout any of your dermatology exams, whether it's for the core exams or for your board exams or for your MOS exam. And the reason is, is because so much of this is just there are correct answers. There's like not much gray area. There's such black and white answers, especially when it comes to things that you'd naturally feel like you need to memorize. And this is where the Anki deck comes in handy. Which wasn't available when I was in medical school, by the way. So the, the, the my colleagues coming up behind me, they seemed infinitely smarter with Anki Deck. And for those of you who have used it, 
I've never used it correctly, but it's it's a database like a flashcard sheet. It uses these memory tools to help you memorize things. But that's where this content lives. So then the reason I say that, and here's some examples of this, is you have suture types, right? It's like, okay, who, there's no, there's not much concept. There's not much depth to which suture has the highest plasticity or which one has the highest tensile strength or which one has the highest suture reactivity, like for gut or which one, you know, this is all very straightforward things when it does actually matter in real life. Like now that I'm on the side of it, I actually make these decisions. I have now strong preferences for sutures, which I never thought I would have, but I have very strong preferences for sutures, but all that does matter. And so there is like a really important place for this. Um, but that's a really nice, easy thing to memorize. And those are free points. Like you don't have a think there's not a lot of mental energy. Once you sit down in front of an exam and you have your checklist of which one has the best memory or, uh, I mean, even like what are the high risk features for uh, squamous cell carcinoma, you know, like perineural invasion based off the Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital criteria, you know, the size greater than two centimeters. And th these are those are just very straightforward things that, again, are easy to knock out on a test, but again, very practical in real life because that will help you stratify a patient and have a real conversation with them. So I actually don't at all mind the testing format. I think their content is like very relevant for surgical dermatology and it reacts in real life, in real life situations. But then you have the member, you have the non-memorizing stuff. And I think this is the most difficult for people because I think people's surgical dermatology experience varies tremendously from program to program. And so if you haven't seen complicated flaps ex uh, executed, it can be very hard to conceptualize these. Like if you're someone who struggled in geometry, you're probably going to struggle at least initially with the that idea of flaps. That was you? That was me. That was... <laughs> Yeah, because you do. You need to be able to take a shape, manipulate it on your mind, but then you also have to understand why you're manipulating it. And so as I kind of progressed through my training, it all kind of clicked. And for me, it was in fellowship where it really, really clicked. Like if you understand it, you can do anything. You can just take a look at a picture, take a look at a final product, be like, oh, okay, I can make that happen. And then there's some key points. But because you have this whole checklist of closures, right? We have our like from simple to complex you have your, like your advancement flaps and then you have your rotation flaps and then you have your interpolation flaps and all the way down to grafts and like second intent being a great option but your last resort but all of this is very conceptual it's in your mind but i think the best resource for this i think is like this good place for resources because if you have these two concepts down like memorize xyz onky deck is a perfect tool understanding the flaps like can you see it in real life yes no that's gonna be different for each person but then you want a consolidated source. So here's resources like the ASDS primer, excellent resource for memorization, outstanding. Olicon, which has a lot of content crossover with the ASDS primer. Those are very good for those bullet point things. Now, not everything is going to be in there, but most of what you're going to want is actually going to be in there. And then you have the flaps for that. I particularly liked very, when I was in residency, very simple versions of this or stripped down versions. And that was in Bologna's book. I know we all just call this book Bologna's book, which no discredit to the other authors. Unfortunately, that's just how this book has become known in the dermatology community. But the surgical derm in that book is outstanding. It's just like advancing flaps, rotation flaps, trans et cetera. And it's very easy to visualize, conceptualize. There's not fluff, there's no fluff in there. And then actually, I personally am a big fan of a Dr. Cook, Duke. he wrote a book on surgical flaps and grafts. Um, again, just very straightforward, very well organized. And then you just draw them. Like, I think you as a dermatologist are probably comfortable working with your hands where you're very visual and to so just draw them, manipulate them, know not only when the flap is good, what's the benefit of the flap, 
know what the key stitch is. Although I think once you get to a high level, that's debatable because everything is deliberate and there's a why behind every move. Um, but the key stitch is highly testable. And then people love rhombic flaps. Just throw it out there. Rhombic flaps are going to show up because they're those are hard to visualize. Like I think it's a workhorse flap. I love it in real life. But you need to know which triangle goes where or which rounded edge goes where. Um, and that's, that's a very important thing. Um, but those are some resources, some basic tips and tricks in how to approach this surgical board exam. But don't stress it. This one really should be the most straightforward one you're going to encounter your entire professional training career. That was excellent. I love all those tips. And you're right. Don't get nervous. A lot of memorization and some concepts that may be a little bit scary in the beginning. But if you draw them out, if you look at videos, if you work with them by reviewing them, it'll become second nature. And no matter if you're going to be a surgical dermatologist or not in your career, most dermatologists are going to do surgery because we own excisions and the skin's very accessible, lots of skin cancer, obviously, uh, out in the world. So it's really important to study this and it's going to help you a lot in your career, not just to pass the exam. So that was awesome, Dr. Maxwell. Thank you so much. So let's transition into the next part of the episode where we're going to talk about transitions. And in medicine, there's so many transitions from medical student to resident from resident to chief resident. And then I think one of the biggest transitions is from resident to attending where you always have somebody checking your work or you're reporting to, but then tomorrow, the next day, a few days later after you graduate, that's it. You're on your own. So I want to get some tips and advice from you about how to handle this and how to succeed doing this. And I want to ask you, before we get started, really, how did it feel leaving your last day of training and then how did it feel the next day when you're on your own and there's nobody to ask or nobody to staff a patient with? What did that feel like? Uh, well, it felt good. <laughs> I know the <laughs> standard. I know the answer is just like, you know, you feel scared, you feel unsure. And I know that it, there's this, that is certainly true, but I had a lot of safety nets around me. Um, but boy, it felt good. I mean, doc, being a tr training to become a doctor and a dermatologist and a Mozart, it's so long. Like, and you're working so hard. And so having that sense of freedom, and honestly, I think all of you can relate to this, having a little bit of scheduling freedom where the world starts to revolve around your life a little bit, that's an amazing feeling because you have control over your time and life all of a sudden just falls into place in a sense. But from the medical side, like you were talking about, like how scary is it to have each of those individual decisions solely on you? And so I, I did feel pretty comfortable and that's like a... a it's a pitfall as well as a positive because obviously the problem would be you still don't have a ton of real world experience in only decision making and then seeing the follow up. So that can be, you don't want to be overconfident in no situation. Do you ever want to be overconfident? Um, but I think you can be comfortable and you also have to be comfortable with your limitations. So the safety nets that I was talking about, I didn't just go off to a pri private practice in another state, not only during fellowship, was I able to do some general dermatology. So I had a whole year of like general dermatology, understanding the workflow, the same EMR in the program I started with. So that whole, that was just a no brainer, just a really slow ramp up. So all of the things you would have to think about charting the things that aren't directly related to medical care, I was fine. That was comfortable. I was fine. The second side of it too is, you know, now I am on my own. I'm making my own decisions, but I'm still at the practice I stayed on with. I stayed on as faculty, took over some leadership positions. Um, but, you know, I knew my MAs. They'd worked with me for years. And then I also had, you know, my mentor who, uh, my mentor both surgical, my program director, uh, for Mohs surgery and my dermatology residency program director. I had so many colleagues and peers who I had these deep relationships with. Not only could I text them at any moment, but heck for a little while, they're right down the hall until I moved to my own office down in another city. So, um, you know, I felt like it was a safe place and 
Uh, but I do believe that the most important thing you can do is just honestly bust your butt early on. I said this in internal medicine when I was doing this because I kind of had this curvy, windy trajectory through residency. Um, but I feel like if you really like push yourself hard, establish a very strong knowledge foundation and as best you can procedural foundation early on in residency, uh, you really set yourself up for success later down the road. Yeah, I like what you said about, okay, you're starting this brand new practice. You're the only one. There's nobody to report to, so to speak. But before you have to deal with all those things, make sure you know where the bathroom is, how the phones work, how the <laughs> EMR works, what the MA's names are, you know, where the best spot to get coffee is. Because if you can take care of all that, all that stuff is out of your mind, off your plate, and you can focus on practicing medicine. So you mentioned doing some things early on in residency. How about your last year, your chief year, your final year? What are some things you can start doing to help you with this transition? Uh, you know, I think as you graduate in responsibilities from year to year, you should be making decisions. And even if you do have a fallback during that year in terms of someone coming behind your work, like you should pretend you don't. Like you should be owning each decision you make. And then also the follow-up is important as well, where you kind of reflect on each medical decision you've made and see how that went. And also look at everyone else's too. Like this is a huge learning opportunity. You're in this with other people. And if you can learn from their medical medical decisions too, you're just going to exponentially increase the amount you learn. And so again, third year, I think you should practice like you're autonomous. I think you should be an aggressive decision maker, not an aggressive practicer, but an aggressive decision maker. And again, live like you're an attending, make decisions like you're an attending, own it like you're an attending, have responsibility in your mind like you're an attending. Because then as again, you step out onto your own into a little bit of space that pressure and discomfort is going to feel like a lot less because you weren't relying on someone during that last year of residency. Exactly. So from day one of chief year, your third year, go in there, pretend you're the attending. And then when you graduate and start independent practice, it's going to be like, well, I was doing this already. So this is not so scary. So preparing is very important. We've all, we all study very hard in residency. There's so much reading in dermatology. Bologna is a Bible, you know? Uh, so what do you do after you graduate? Because you're not studying for the boards anymore. And this is a lifelong learning of medicine. Of course, we all want to go home and relax, which is appropriate to do in, in many, many cases, but we do have to keep up our learning, keep up our skills. So what's the best way to tackle that as an early career dermatologist after graduating, given that you've been reading, you know, Wolverton, Bologna, Ali Khan for all those years, what do you do after you graduate to fill those gaps? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I think this, you know, there's like that CMA, CME grace period after you graduate um, where, you know, you have continuing medical education hours that you're responsible for, accountable for, and you have to continue to do that to maintain your licensure. However, it's, I think I don't remember the numbers, like within two years, perhaps of graduating. It's actually a little bit of a flux because it counts towards it. But the reason I say that is I think it's absolutely appropriate because I think a lot of your learning and because I know you're emphasizing the, the formal education beyond education. But I think a lot of your learning now becomes real world experience. Um, and I think that's invaluable because and here, here's an example. I don't know if this was your experience, but this was mine. You get an older doctor and I won't quantify the age, but you get an older doctor and sometimes they have a hard time communicating why they're doing something. But they just do it and they know it's going to work and they know why, especially in dermatology. They'll look at something and be like, oh, this is this. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, why, what did I, what did you see that I didn't see? And some, a lot of times they have a hard time communicating it, um, but it comes with experience. And also I'd noticed that it tends to be that younger doctors 
rely much more heavily, I myself included, rely much more heavily on studies, numbers, and data. And older doctors often will rely much more heavily on their gut and their experience. And I think it's valuable. Now being, again, on this side, I'm not seasoned, but (laughs) I've really come to appreciate the value of experience. Because if you take a look at like something like aspirin and its role in medicine, this is an ingredient that has fluctuated in its use over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so an older doctor will see that. They'll see a new study and be like, eh, I'm not that excited because either it's something new, like oral minoxidil. This is a perfect example in our space. It's lights out popular for hair loss now. Is it a new ingredient? No. Is it, are there new studies on it? I mean, yes, but they're not much different than the old studies on it. And so for someone who's had a lot of experience, they have tempered expectations and they can just weather kind of the ups and downs of medicine and knowledge. So real world experience, I think actually that's my, in my opinion, that might be the most important thing coming out of your residency is applying, seeing your follow-ups and getting a sense of your gut and gestalt. But coupling that with what you talked about is like, how do you learn? Some people love conferences. I don't like conferences like a dad bad secret i don't like conferences i like part of that comes from having a family and the travel is very disruptive i was fortunate to be in a program that strongly encouraged conference attendance and it was very valuable but for someone with a family who is also trying to hustle on the weekends to make ends meet because uh, you can't balance a budget for a family on a residency salary that's a whole other thing but i was always doing multiple things and so that was very difficult for me to balance um, so i just have a bad taste in my mouth so i like reading i like journals I like hearing about that. I I like to continue my education through journals. But some people, like my colleague, Dr. Rice, she loves conferences. So she's going to be going to all these conferences. She's a part of all these social groups. Um, And it's not exactly like you have to do my way. You have to do someone else's way. There's definitely value in all of it. And you can go to the Facebook board certified Durham group. Like uh, my colleague, Dr. Rice, just made me join today. I'm not big on Facebook. I'm not great, but there's value in being a part of the things with your colleagues and hearing their personal experience because that's valuable and that complements your studies that come out. So I think all of that just works together to create a well-rounded doctor moving forward. Yeah. Find out how you learn best, whether it's conferences or reading. Everyone should obviously look at the JAD and Jamaderm abstracts, at least just browse through them. If something looks interesting, read the article. It's the only way you're going to get better uh, and keep up with the rapidly changing pace of medicine. And what you said is great. And I really agree. It's time to learn from your patients now. And if you see a bump on somebody's finger or someone's back and you send it to the surgeon, you really should follow up to see what that bump was. So you can start mm-hmm. to figure out what things are and what things need follow up, what things don't. And Somebody who's been practicing Durham for 30, 35 years, like you said, they have that gut instinct and nothing can replace that because they've seen their patients in real life. They've made mistakes. They've fixed the mistakes. And that's the only way you're going to get better at that experience. How about something that really scares me is you just go into a room uh, and you just see a crazy rash. You have no idea what it is. What do you do? I think you'd be honest about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, the first thing. I think as, as a dermatologist, we have a wealth of information. We live in a world of zebras where that's like 90% of our, our data that we take in. That's, that's unusual. And I think that's the world of these super subspecialties. Dermatology is a whole new language. Like it's so separate from general medicine. So not only can we have a good discussion of whether our patient like, okay, well, this is what I'm seeing. This is what could be going on. This is how we get from what could be to what it is. And oftentimes it's like a biopsy or labs. And then if it's one of these most common ideas, this is what we'll do. And I think that closes the loop for them because patients, I think, are inherently gracious for the most part. And if you are upfront, honest with them, show them that you're knowledgeable, you care, you're invested, and you're going to work through these things with them. 
they will be with you to the end and they're going to give you a ton of grace and a ton of time as you take each necessary step to get the answer. Because a lot of times rashes are nonspecific. You can get as a dermatologist, like I am not embarrassed to admit psoriasis and eczema can look the same at some point. They're like vastly different, but occasionally you're going to get a rash that's like psoriasis, eczema, this isn't a biopsy diagnosis. What the heck? And eventually it'll probably show itself. But you can communicate that with patients. So I like to include them in this. I like to be very straightforward because they'll respect you for your honesty, your knowledge base, and also, again, including them in the discussion and walking them through. And they'll feel comfortable knowing that you know where you're going and where you'll go next if you still need to do more to get the right answer or for treatment. Yeah. I talked to a couple of mentors who've been doing this for 30, 35 years, and they said, there's things you're not going to know, but you have a community of people that you trained with. So see who's willing to help you and reach out to them with pictures and phone calls. Everyone's happy to help each other. We all love Mm -hmm. Durham. We all love helping each other. And one of my mentors who's again, been practicing for 30, 35 years said the biggest mistake she sees new grads make is just biopsying something and using that as the answer key. And they say it's biopsy proven. But again, this is clinical pathological correlation. And sometimes you have to know when to throw the biopsy results out and treat the patient clinically, which is hard to do when you're starting out, but will come with experience as you learn from your patients. But if you're struggling with a diagnosis, don't know what's going on, don't be afraid to biopsy. Don't be afraid to reach out to someone, go on the Facebook group. We're all here to help each other. Yeah, that's actually probably an understated thing about the dermatology community that people outside of the community probably don't know and don't see. This is the best community of doctors out there. Like I have no experience in any of their specialties. So I'm talking out of my rear end here, but I love this group of people. Like it is such a tight knit, small community. You're absolutely right. Your colleagues are going to be willing to help you. What a great resource um, it, locally and abroad. Um, we just, it's just an incredible community to be a part of, and it makes it better for the patient. Like we're all on the same page. We're all optimistic, positive, helpful people. And when we collaborate, it definitely turns out to better outcomes for patients. Did you change your bedside manner, so to speak, or have to work on that now? Because now people can review you. They can write bad things about you. They can write good things about you. You know, you're a brand, you're a practice, uh, you're a business. So did you feel like you had to change something or, or consciously work on that after you graduated residency? No, 0%. I still, to this day, have never read a review on me. And it's not to discredit the positive or negative reviews, because I think there's probably merit in both. But I take my feedback from my individual interactions in the room. Like I'm very big on like eye contact. Like I'll sit down in front of you and I'll make it very clear that you might have my attention. And everything else beyond that interaction is just fluff. It's extra. Like we as human beings, there are going to be patients that don't vibe with me. I completely understand that. But what I hope you get out of the visit is that I gave you my time, my attention, and I cared. And typically... um, that will turn into a positive experience overall. So I I have more of the philosophy that if you treat people like people, the rest will take care of itself. And so, no, I pay very little attention to the extraneous things that unfortunately, and I'd say that meaningfully, we're unfortunately subjected to worry about um, because the business of medicine is huge. It's a very difficult thing to navigate as a physician. And I think we don't want to in a lot of ways. We want to take care of the person in front of us. But what we can control is trying to communicate that to the person in front of us. And a lot of times it's with body language. So um, that's where my focus is on the daily basis. <laughs> with every patient interaction, that's where my focus is. And I'm hopeful, and I do believe it actually translates to the other side of it, which is now like, you know, the Google reviews, the Yelp reviews, um, because I do feel like that is somewhat out of our control. 
yeah, I'm scary, overwhelming when you start. All the decisions are on you. You're the one that could get sued. But I think if you take it back to the basics and just treat people as humans, be caring, be empathetic, somebody who comes in with psoriasis, which we've all seen thousands of times, a new psoriasis diagnosis could be very scary to someone. So you have to keep that in mind. And again, treat them like a human, be empathetic, and that will really do a lot for you. And as you move on to medicine, when the, the hard stuff becomes soft and the soft stuff becomes hard. So you want to really keep those things in mind as, as you're moving forward. And we discussed a lot of things that may be a little bit scary to people, but you know, look, you made it, you graduated. So it's time to have some fun, live out your dreams, work hard in dermatology, which we all love to do, but also things that you want to do in your life. Now it's time to get started uh, if you haven't done, done them already. So Dr. Maxwell, this has been great. I learned a lot. And I think our resident colleagues learned a lot too. You're, you're going to make the transition easier for everybody. But we have one last question. We always end with a fun personal question. I know you're a big surfer. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about that for a few minutes. And I only surfed once a couple of years ago when I was in Hawaii and Kauai and obviously the most mm-hmm. gorgeous beach in the world. And I'm glad no one took any photos or videos because they, they would blackmail me with how embarrassing <laughs> my performance was. You know, When I did my pop-up, my, my the wrong foot would go forward and my instructor said focus on the beach, but I was looking at my feet and I would, I fell every time and I was huffing and puffing. Like I just ran a marathon. So just tell me about surfing and why you like it and where, where, where do you go for it? Yeah, this started early. It's in my blood. I swear it's in my blood. My mom's from Indonesia and I'm, I'm, I'm Moana incarnate. It like calls to me. I'm from Colorado. I was known near, near the ocean, but I just have this spiritual affinity for it. Now I'm going to tie this all together. So you said even before this, like you're in attending, it's time, like live life, do some things. And then you caveat it quickly with if you haven't done it already. I yes. think that's the most important step. Life is a freaking journey. And the reason that's extra important for physicians is we live off of delayed gratification. Like if you wait until the end of residency fellowship to start doing something with your life outside of medicine, that I think you are missing a huge window and you might miss it all. Life goes on around you. And I cannot emphasize enough, like life is journey, have an adventure, build into the relationships around you during this whole journey because it's not the destination. You feel 100% the same the day you graduate from the day before. Money is helpful. It adds no joy. It adds no value. It adds nothing in a meaningful way. So I think it's up to us to take care of these things like these paintings behind me. Like I threw them up on a purpose because I painted these. I learned how to do this in third year uh, medical school and progressively I loved, I learned to paint. I don't do it anymore. I have kids, they take all my time, but I don't paint. But I love to paint. I learned surfing the same thing. I have this love for the ocean. And so I was like, I'm going to be a surfer. Like I'm not going to wait till later. It's now. So I just carve out some time. I'm very, very conscious of time. That's our currency in this world is time. And so I learned how to surf and now I'm a proficient surfer. Um, but it's that, that part of it's ingrained in me. I took Dr. Shaw surfing. He's a brave soul. He got destroyed. Um, but that's something I like to share with people because it's a very spiritual, deep seated love for me as well. Um, so I can't escape it. It just calls to me. There's a song about that. You should listen to it. <laughs> I, I love that. And you're totally right. I did have that caveat and I'm a huge believer in that destination is not worth it. If you don't enjoy the journey, uh, yeah. after you graduate, you'll have a little bit more time, a little bit more money to do some things that maybe you couldn't do before. But if you want to do something now is the time to do it. Don't wait because the years are going to pass and you may never, never get to it. But you know, yeah. surfing, I'd love to do again. So let's hit the beach and we can hang 10 together. I think that'd be let's awesome. Do it. Okay. <laughs> if you're ever in North Carolina, <laughs> we'll hit it. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Maxfield. Super helpful episode. No, oh, you bet. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. I greatly appreciate it. So thank you so much. Well, here you go.